pardon me while I get into position here. I'm like the rabbis of old, I'll be preaching while seated. Um, for those who aren't on Facebook or haven't already asked me, I just have some tendonitis in my foot, so the boot is there for a few weeks, and um, I'll sit, not, mo not mostly because it hurts when I stand, but mostly because I like to walk around, as you know, and it's rather clumsy to walk around in it, and so uh, I'd rather you be distracted by other things than my foot and the way that I walk. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, that's where we'll be today. We'll read uh, the whole chapter here in just a moment. Here in just a couple of months, football will be back. And someone, somewhere, on some network will begin the season by talking about coaches who are on the hot seat. Uh, meaning that if their season doesn't go well, uh, they're very likely to not have a job by the end of the year. And so as the season progresses, if things aren't going well, some commentator somewhere, some sports talk radio host is going to say something like, well, the writing's on the wall, right? And we all know what that means. We know that it's inevitable. The coach is sure to be fired. We get a number of English phrases uh, from the Bible that many people may not know are from the Bible, but they are specifically from Tyndale's translation of the Bible about 80 years prior to the King James that some may use. Uh, things like uh, fight the good fight, an eye for an eye. These kinds of things, uh, they're common language to us, and, and we think they're written just like that. This is a translation of what we're finding in the Bible. Uh, and, and the whole idea of the, writings on, the writing is on the wall comes from the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning in Daniel 5. Now, if you haven't been around, we're working our way through this book and if you had sat down and read it from the beginning this morning, you read from starting in Daniel chapter 1, when you get to Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, you're going to be a little confused because at the end of chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is speaking. And as soon as you get to chapter 5, verse 1, there's no more Nebuchadnezzar. Now it's just Belshazzar, and he's the king. Uh, and there's no transition there's no, I mean, this would get a bad grade in English class, right? I mean, it doesn't, you don't have this smooth transition, but the fact is, is that we've, we've left about nine years and four kings into the future. But why is that? Why did they do that? Well, because the, the book of Daniel isn't written to give us a play-by-play -play of this history, to give us every moment. It's, it's written to teach us. So, chronology is not the main goal of the book of Daniel. Theology is the main goal of the book of Daniel. And so we're going to read chapter 5. It would be helpful to have it open in front of you, and then uh, we will look at what this chapter teaches us about God. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words are written. I do apologize. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there is one in front of you. It's on page 742 is Daniel chapter 5, but we'll begin reading. 
King Belshazzar made a great feast for a, th- for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. And his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter." But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king... The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. 
He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you have, have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Father, these are your words that you have given us by your Spirit, and we pray for your help now to understand them. We pray that you will open our eyes and ears, that we will see and hear your truth clearly, that you will open our hearts that we might receive it and believe it and love it and live differently because of it. And we pray it all for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. So if we were to go back to Daniel 4, we would find God humbling King Nebuchadnezzar. And we find in chapter 5, God humbling another king, Belshazzar. And what we learn from this chapter is something that actually the Apostle Paul is going to write later, much later in his letter to the Galatians, when he writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And that's the main idea of this chapter. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. So let's look at it. First, thinking about the king's contempt. The king's contempt. Here we are at a great Babylonian feast. In some ways, there's nothing unique about it. There would be feasts like this often, but here there are over a thousand guests. There's rich food. There's free-flowing wine. And from sources outside the Bible, we learn that it's actually not the best of times to be drinking and to having a party because the Persians are on a winning streak militarily, and they are actually knocking on the door of Babylon. But Belshazzar feels pretty secure. The city's well protected. They've got stores of food that could last for years. And so 
He's probably thinking something like, you know, nothing's going to happen tonight, so we may as well eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this is certainly arrogance, but there's more than arrogance going on at this particular party. Look at verses 2 to 4. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So not only do they drink from them, verse 4 says they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So back in chapter 1, we're told that when Nebuchadnezzar had brought this first wave, this wave of exiles, he also took some of the vessels of the temple in Jerusalem and put them in the temple of his God. And so now these folks are drinking from it. But this is no coincidence. This is not an accident. This is not like the party planner did a bad job. Like, oh no, we didn't order enough Dixie cups for the feast. This is, this is the intentional, go get those vessels and bring them here. You know, the, the, the vessels from the Jews' God. And so he brings them in. There's something intentional happening here. There's something actually evil happening here. God's vessels are being used to serve Belshazzar's purposes. To achieve his ends. To praise his gods. And this contempt... It, it, this is contempt. It's contempt for God's vessels, which is actually contempt for God Himself. When I was very young, before I knew anything about baseball, my father stood in line for over three hours to get me a baseball signed by Mickey Mantle. It said, To Toby, Mickey Mantle. When I was 12 years old, I decided to do some research. I decided to figure out how much a baseball like this might be worth. Well, I came to find out if you have a baseball signed by Mickey Mantle, it is worth a lot of money. If you have a baseball signed by Mickey Mantle addressed to me, it's not worth nearly as much money, unless your name happens to be Toby, all right? Now, so I decided because it wasn't worth a lot of money, well, we'll just play with it then. Yeah, exactly. My dad had the same reaction when I told him what happened to the baseball recently. I don't think he ever knew, which I thought he did, but he didn't. And the thing got ruined or lost or something. It was very sandlotish of, of the whole situation. But, but basically, the... I didn't, I didn't value the, the baseball because it wasn't worth any money. So to me, it just wasn't worth all that much. But did you know, did you, not valuing the ball actually shows I, I, didn't, I didn't value Mickey Mantle. I didn't even value my dad's effort in going to get me the ball. Another example, if you show up at work tomorrow and all your stuff is in boxes outside the building, having been picked through by your coworkers to take whatever they want, what conclusion are you going to draw? Are you going to think, 
well, they don't have very much respect for my stuff. No, you're going to think they don't care a bit about me. Contempt for God's vessels is contempt for God himself. And that's what we see at this feast. But we need to be careful not to very quickly go to shaking our head and wagging our finger at, at Belshazzar. Because this kind of thing happens today. The, the, the idea that, that, that God is a means to something else. That he's there to serve my purposes. Achieve what I want to actually do. I mean, how many people... I mean, just think of it this way. If I, if I take God's word and I ignore why God gave it, and I ignore the meaning of it, and I just take it and I twist it to mean what I want it to mean, so it will say what I want it to say, so it'll support what I want, so it'll affirm me even if I sin, then I am showing contempt for God's Word, and thus contempt for God. Or how many times do... Do, do people maybe treat prayer like it's a magic lamp? Like if I, just, if I just rub it right and I use the right words, God the genie will rush to my side and give me everything I wish for. Or how many people often see obeying God and trusting God as a means of getting something else? I want to get a better spouse. I want my spouse to improve, so I'm going to obey God and trust God so he'll give me what I want. I will obey God and trust God and worship God so that I can get the raise that I want at work, so that I can get more obedient children, so that I can move toward a pain-free life. Rather than seeing obedience and worship and faith, as that which honors God, that ends, that has its terminating point on God. Now, you may wonder, how do I know if I'm doing that? Because you don't want to do that, right? How do I know if I'm using God as a means and not seeing Him as the end, the one for whom I live? Well, if you ever catch yourself thinking, I tried obeying, I tried worship, I tried trusting I tried praying, but it didn't work. Nothing changed about my situation. My spouse is still the same. My job's still at a dead end. My diagnosis hasn't changed. If we do that, if we say, I've done what God wants me to do, but God hasn't given me what I wanted, then what we are saying is God is a means to my end and not the end all be all of my life. And that, friends, is contempt for God. When we, when we do this, when, when we degrade God to the position of servant rather than seeing him as supreme we have the spirit of Belshazzar but not only do we see the king's contempt we see the king's indictment that's what comes next beginning in verse 5 immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace 
opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs give way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And when they can't, he gets even worse. Verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. You see... Yes, Nebuchadnezzar had taken these vessels, but Belshazzar has now used them to mock God, and God will not be mocked. And so, the first thing we see here is this cryptic indictment of the king, because nobody knows what it says. Nobody knows what it means. So, first, God, God cryptically indicts the king. These, met, these fingers appear and write a message on the wall. Uh, he, 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 Belshazzar, is, you know, he loses all the color in his face, his mind panics, his knees knock, his limbs give way. That whole idea of his limbs giving way, it could mean that he collapsed or it could mean that he lost control of his bodily functions. But this man is scared out of his mind. The point is, is that before he ever understands what the message is, he knows it's not good because he knows what he's done, which is why this was not an accident. It wasn't just, we need extra cups, so go get the vessels. He knows what he's done is a violation. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, you might think, well, this actually could be a good thing. I mean, this kind of trembling, this fear, I mean, fear and trembling, this is good. This could be the first step of repentance, but that's not what it is. During the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards wrote a work called uh, the, the Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God, or something very close to that. And in it, he talks about both the, the, the marks that are not marks of the work of the Spirit of God and those that are genuine. And among those that are not, listen to what he says, a work of the Spirit is not to be judged by any effects on the bodies of men, such as tears, trembling, groans, loud outcries, agonies of body, or the failing of bodily strength, because the Scripture nowhere gives us any such rule. Now, this week is uh, just this afternoon. Uh, teenagers are going. They're leaving for our Truth for Youth camp. I always loved camp. It was always a great highlight when I was in youth ministry to, to have camp and to, to be able to invest in a very intense manner you know, into kids. Uh, but it was inevitable that on like the last night, uh, emotions run high, in part because these kids are extremely exhausted from the week. And so, you know, tears are very close to the surface. But also, in some of them, quite honestly, the Lord is at work. So the tears could be any number of things. But, but on those last nights, I would tell the people that were, you know, our, our, our leaders, our volunteers, that, that being tearful and feeling bad and crying and saying, I want to rededicate my life to the Lord, these are not necessarily marks of the Spirit of God. They could be, though. Because time will tell. 
Because it is not the external expression, it is not the crying of tears, it is not, the, it is not simply sorrow that indicates that God's Spirit is bringing genuine conviction that leads to repentance, right? We know this from the Bible. There is godly sorrow, but there is also what? Worldly sorrow. Both of them are sorrow. It could actually look very similar between two different people. A friend of mine and I just used to look at one another and we used to say the evidence of a changed life is a changed life. Time will tell. And time does tell for Belshazzar. He's not interested in changing. He's just terrified of what he's seen. He's just shaking in his boots. I'd be shaking in my boot, singular. And this terror increases when his counselors can't tell him what this frightening message actually means. But the cryptic indictment becomes clear because next, God's messenger clearly indicts the king. All right? So in verse 10, the queen, uh, it says the queen, it's likely the queen mother, uh, comes into the banqueting hall and announces that there is one Look at verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king. Now, notice that that repetition is not accidental. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king. What did he do with him? He made him the chief of the wise men. Right now, you don't even know where to find him. And so she recommends that he call him in, and so Belshazzar does. Calls him in, promises the same things that he had promised his counselors. But Daniel wants none of it. Daniel doesn't want the robe. Daniel doesn't want the chain. Daniel doesn't want the power and the prestige and the wealth that is offered to him. But he will speak. Look at verse 18. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed with grass like like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now, as we'll come to learn, Belshazzar knew all of this. It's not unfathomable that everybody in Babylon knew this. Who doesn't know the legendary story of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king who went crazy and became like a wild animal? Everybody knows about this, but it's the reason for his fall that matters here. Look at verse 20, when his heart was lifted up. 
It was Nebuchadnezzar's pride. It was his arrogance. It was his presumption. You see, though God had given him everything he had, look back at chapter 4, verse 30. This is what he says. Remember, God gave it to him, but this is what he says in chapter 4, verse 30. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Arrogance. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Daniel brings this up because Belshazzar should have known and learned from it. But he just repeats the pattern. Look at verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself. There's that phrase again. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar knew Nebuchadnezzar's story. He knew the pride. He knew the fall. He knew God wouldn't let it go. He knew all of it, but he would learn from none of it. You see, Belshazzar's problem isn't ignorance. It's insolence. It's not that he's not aware. It's that he doesn't care. He will do what he wants. He will live how he wants. And he will smirk at heaven while he does it. Now, friends, we who know the Bible, we should know the warnings of so many in the Bible who fell. We should have near our recollection Samson's lust and Saul's disobedience and Israel's unbelief and the Pharisees' hypocrisy and Peter's fear of man and David's adultery and Moses' anger and so much more. But if you know none of these, if you, none of those names sounded familiar to you, but do you know who you know of now? Belshazzar. You know of him. And all of these are written as examples. Paul says so. He writes about Israel in the wilderness, and he says in 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Oh, friends, how many of us read these stories and relegate it to history or children's Sunday school? We don't learn from them. We don't avoid following bad examples. We don't feel a sense of a deep need for God. We don't cry out for His grace and His help. Why? Because we think we are different from them when in reality we are just like them. And what's worse, if we admit we are just like them, somehow we think of grace as a way of saying, hey, it's no big deal, I'm just like them, but you know, grace. Friends, grace is wonderful and glorious. But should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid that it would happen. Don't follow in Belshazzar's footsteps. Don't refuse to learn 
from the history of God's work in the world. Don't fail to learn from good examples. Don't fail to avoid the bad examples. Don't fail to learn from the sins of others as well as from your own. And then having laid out this history in Belshazzar's failure to learn, Daniel comes to the clear indictment of the king, verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. You think you're invincible, Belshazzar? Your days are numbered. You think that you're supreme, but God has weighed you in His balance and you're lacking. You think you're secure. But your kingdom is frail, and you're finished. Now, you would think that an indictment like that would send Belshazzar to his knees, crying out for mercy from this God. Even following in Nebuchadnezzar's footsteps and saying great and glorious things about God. But he doesn't. He just does what he promised, and he goes about his business. Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, as if it's over. Well, it is, but not in the sense that Belshazzar thinks. You see, friends, every human being is like Belshazzar. Our days are numbered. Not by us, not by our doctors, not by our health regimens, not by our efforts, but our days are numbered by God Himself. And like Belshazzar, no matter what we think of ourselves, no matter what evaluation we might make on our own lives, when our lives are weighed out by God, they are found wanting. There is actually a religion in the world that speaks of a balance like this of good and bad that will determine eternity. Those of you uh, who have Muslim friends, Islam teaches that there is a weighing out in the balance of the good and the bad. In the Quran it is written, then those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they are successful, but those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls. In hell they will, will they abide. But friends, this is not what the Bible teaches. I quote that to reinforce yet again that simply because Islam is monotheistic does not mean, and because it, Islam recognizes parts of the Bible, doesn't mean that we essentially serve the same God with a tweak here or there. This is not the gospel that we know. You see, the issue is not that our good deeds will be weighed against our bad deeds. The issue is that our lives are weighed against the perfect righteousness of God. And it is found wanting. It is lacking. 
It is not enough. And it will never be enough. And that's why all of us are like Belshazzar. All of us are in the same boat. This indictment in Daniel chapter 5 isn't just for Belshazzar. It's, it's an indictment of the entire human race. Because we turn our nose up at God. Because we think He is meant to serve us and not the other way around. Because we think that He is meant to give us the life that we want. Rather than surrender our lives to Him. Because we have been found wanting, lacking. And that takes us to the last thing, which is the king's judgment. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. In some sense, if this were written as a graphic novel, the words from Daniel would still be in the word bubble coming out his mouth. Hanging in the air. Your days are numbered. You've been found wanting. It's over. And then it was over. Now a couple of things to note about this judgment. The first is that it's immediate. That very night. If you remember last week, there were 12 months between the time that Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and the time that the prophecy actually came about. There's so much time to repent, to turn, to humble himself, but not with Belshazzar. It's immediate. Friends, though God is merciful and is patient... And even now, as we continue to breathe, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should consider it His mercy and patience that you get to hear of the salvation offered in Jesus Christ and have an opportunity to turn from your sin and trust in Him. That is a sweet mercy from God. But what we deserve is that very night. That's what we deserve. That's what our sin deserves. There is nothing about God's patience that we deserve. There is nothing about God's mercy that we deserve. But there is everything about God's judgment that we deserve. It calls to mind the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. There's this man who's rich and he's, he's not only loves his money, he's trying to hoard it. So he's tearing down barns to build bigger barns to store more wealth. And like Belshazzar, he just wants to eat Drink and be merry. And like Belshazzar, God comes to him and says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Friends, today around the world, over 162,000 people will die. Some already see it on the horizon because they're terminally ill. And for others, it will come swiftly and suddenly and seemingly out of nowhere. But that many people will hear, this night, 
your soul is required of you. If you are one of the 162,000 for today, where does that leave you with God? That very night. But not only is it immediate, it's final. Belshazzar dies. He doesn't get struck with illness. He doesn't simply have the throne taken from him. He's not sent into exile. He dies. And it's final. But in the scope of the Bible, there's actually more. I mean, we will all face physical death, but there is something beyond it. Death, in that sense, is like a door where we pass from time into eternity. And when we cross the threshold of that door, our place is set forever. We will either be in heaven or in hell. The Bible says in Hebrews 9 that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. Jesus actually tells the story of another man, another rich man, a man who loved his wealth and he didn't care about anybody else, a godless man. And Jesus tells of him suffering under judgment in hell, and this man pleads for relief, pleads just a little relief. But from heaven he hears these sobering words, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Dear friends, the chasm between heaven and hell is uncrossable. There is no change. It is final. There is no second chance after death. The mercy of God and the offer of salvation is for this life. It is for this moment. Rejecting God, mocking His goodness, presuming on His grace will lead to punishment, what the Bible calls second death, an eternal death of eternal punishment. Friends, God will not be mocked. We cannot live in rebellion against God, refuse to respond to His Word and think, everything's going to be okay. To read the rest of what Paul wrote in Galatians 6, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God will not be mocked. But hear this. God is merciful. You see, Daniel came to Belshazzar to warn him that God won't be mocked that those who mock God will face judgment, and Belshazzar doesn't listen. But the good news is that there's one who is greater than Daniel. And yes, he warns us also of judgment and of punishment, of hell, but he doesn't stop there. 
He doesn't just speak to us about it. He solves the problem of us facing judgment by taking the judgment for us. He goes beyond what Daniel does. Daniel can only warn Belshazzar about the God who will inflict wrath. Jesus Christ steps in front of that wrath and takes it for us on the cross. Because every one of us has been weighed and found wanting. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus died to take that punishment, and He rose in victory so that when we turn to Him in faith, listen to what happens. His weighty righteousness is credited to us so that when we're weighed in the balance, we're not lacking anymore. We have all that we need because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us. Isn't that good news? Do you really want to stand before God on your own merits? You'll be weighed and found wanting. The only way to pass that day is to be in Christ by faith. Daniel 5 drives home sobering truth. Friends, the writing is on the wall. The question is, how will you respond to it? Will you receive God's Word as true? Will you turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that you will. I pray that you will know the grace of God awakening you to the joys of believing and following Jesus Christ. And if you'd like, I'd be glad to talk with you after the service or sometime this week. Because there's nothing more pressing for your week than this. Let's pray. Oh God, You are the Most High God. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. You are majestic and wonderful. You are good. You are righteous. You are loving and merciful. You are just. You have wrath against sin. You hold all of human history in Your hand. God, keep us from mocking You. Keep us from seeing You as a means to our preferred end. I pray that these words of Daniel 5 will bring sobriety to our souls. I pray that those who don't know You, who aren't following You, will tremble as Belshazzar did, but with godly sorrow that they would repent, that they would see their sin, see the judgment that awaits, 
and see that there is a Savior who will rescue them and forgive them. And I pray you would give them grace to turn to you in faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, before we are dismissed, um, I do want to pray once more. We have uh, a number of teenagers and adults leaving in just a few moments to uh, go to the Truth for Youth camp. Um, we want to, I, I, I pray, would you pray with me for them this week? Would you pray for them this week? This means yes. This means no. Okay. Thank you. Sorry to wake you up. We'll be done soon. Um, but uh, it is going to be a great week of uh, pouring into the lives of teenagers, pointing them to Jesus, uh, conversation, counsel, prayer, teaching. It's going to all... Uh, we pray that it will all work for the salvation of teenagers and the sanctification of teenagers. Uh, that these young men and women who are going uh, will grow to be mighty men and women of God, and that this week will be part of that journey, part of that journey. Let's, let's pray for that, and then we will be dismissed. Father, every moment, every teaching, every bit of counsel is in your hands, and we pray for these who are going uh, to the Truth for Youth Camp this week. We pray that you will give grace we pray you will watch over them. We pray, Father, for those who are in leadership positions. We pray that their hearts and minds will be set on Jesus Christ, that their counsel will be the Bible, that their heart will be for the souls of these young men and women who are going. And Lord, I pray for these teenagers. I pray for those who don't know Christ. I pray for those that they will be convicted of their sin this week. They will turn to Jesus this week. That this week will be memorable because it will be the week your grace broke through in their lives. We pray for those teenagers who do know you. We pray that you will teach them and stir them up to love and good deeds. We pray you will use this week as part of their growth in Christ. We pray, Lord, in all of this, through the traveling and the conversation and the laughter and the games and the teaching and the counsel and the praying and all of it, we pray that you will be glorified, your son will be lifted up, and these who go will be strengthened. Cause us to remember to pray for them often this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.